All right, well, once again, thank you for being here tonight. I want to welcome everybody here and all those listening on our podcast channel. Uh, tonight, we're going to be studying, the, continuing our study, excuse me, of the Old Testament book of Joshua. We're going to look at Joshua chapter 11 and 12. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Joshua uh, chapter 11. We're going to start at verse 1. Um, if you don't have a Bible, no worries. All the verses are going to be on the screen right behind my head. So this is some important, some big stuff happening in these two chapters. So there's a lot to cover. Uh, so Joshua chapter 11, and we're going to start with verses 1 through 5. This is what it tells us. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent word to Jobab, king of Madon, to the kings of Shimron and Akshva, and to the northern kings who were in the mountains, in the Arab south of Kinnereth, in the western foothills, in Napoth Dor in the west, to the Canaanites in the east and west, to the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites in the hill country, to the Hivites below Hermon in the region of Mitzvah. They came out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. All these kings joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Memoram to fight against Israel. Okay, so the reason I read all that is there is a lot going on. Everybody pick up on that? A lot of names, a lot of places, lots of heavy-duty stuff. So there's some important things going on here. First, a little background. The nation of Israel has been very successful so far in entering the promised land, right? Things are going well. God is with them, and very little seems to truly stand in their way. But again, as we read what we just read, we get the sense that word is getting out, that the Israelites are there in this land, right? Uh, lots of different nations, towns, people, kings are aware they're there, that they're being successful, and they're not about to go away, right? They're in the land. They're capturing cities right and left. They can no longer be ignored, these Israelites. And so here we, here we have the king of Hazor who sends word to at least 13 other kings, 13 other kings and their cities and their nations to send armies to help him do what? Fight the Israelites, right? That's the setting. That's what's going on. 13 specific armies against one. These are not small odds. This is not going to be a cakewalk, right? And you kind of get the impression that while the battles that Israelite, the Israelites have been through thus far, they've not really been a piece of cake. This is a whole nother level. This is a whole nother ball game, right? And what's different about this event is Israel has not faced such a large army before, right? They had some serious skirmishes, but what is about to unfold is much, much larger by far, right? Also, the Canaanites who are listed, they had a huge advantage. They had a lot of mounted horsemen, you know, and they also had chariots. The Israelites had none of those things. They did. Now, if you can imagine going to war three, 4,000 years ago, standing on your own two feet with a sword and mounted soldiers are charging you with spears. Would you rather be on the horse or the dude standing in front of the horse? Would you, would you rather be the guy standing there with a sword or chariots come charging at you, which is a horse-drawn carriage, right? This is, this is big stuff, right? The thing about chariots is there was usually a driver and an archer. So the driver would drive, that's why they give them the, you know, that's why I call it driver, obviously. And the archer did what? Shot arrows. And, there was a and they could move and they could swerve and so they could shoot arrows, pull away, reload, and come back. 
right? It was a very, very uh, heavy-duty thing. And back then, this was the most technically advanced warfighting system. These were the big, this was the big deal. Israel was outmanned. They were outgunned. And verse 4 tells us the enemy army was as numerous as the sand on the seashore. That is a powerful picture, right? It's a terrifying mental picture if you really think about that, because this is hand-to-hand combat, right? There's no missiles. There's no, you know, uh, sniper rifles or anything like that. This is going to be hand-to-hand combat. Each Israelite soldier is vastly outnumbered. We don't know exactly how many they have, but each one is going to have to fight and win against 10 to 20 other soldiers, right? They're going to do this or they have to lose. Now, it may kind of seem like I'm leaning into this battle a little hard, and I am, but I don't think it can be overstated how difficult the odds are for the Israelites. We, want, we need to see what they see. We need to have a picture in, their, in our mind of what is actually going on. And this is really important to do because it gives us an understanding of their faith and their commitment to what God is calling them to do. This is a this is big deal. This is why this matters. This is why this part of the Bible, this part of the story is in the Bible, right? And I want, to keep you this, I want you to keep this next point in mind as we proceed through the rest of the teaching, right? This is, this is a great point. God will frequently use difficult situations to prepare us for the future, right? These difficult situations are, are going to require us, just like the Israelites, to use our faith, our courage, our determination to stand strong, stay the course, to achieve what he has called us to do. And it may be something in the future, right? Even if it seems like insurmountable odds or, or it's just plain impossible. It may seem like that for us, but it's not impossible for God, right? And there's, there's actually a number of examples of Jesus actually challenging the disciples in this way also. And, and one, of the, one of the ones that I think that kind of slips through a lot that doesn't get talked about enough is when Jesus feeds the 5,000, right? Ever heard the story where Jesus feeds all those people, right? But there's something that actually happens in the story right before Jesus performs his miracles that shows what high expectations he had for the disciples. Now, let's read about this. It's in Matthew 14. So it's Matthew 14, 15 to 16. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. And Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. And what's he say? You give them some. I just want you to (laughs) think about this for a second. It's not like there's like five or six people there. And he's like, just break up your sandwich and it will be fine. There's well over 5,000 people present. They only have a couple of fish, and a few loaves of bread. And the disciples come to him, and they're like, listen, we have to send these people away. There's nothing here. They have to leave, or we have to leave. I mean, this, this is not like, hey, listen, what are we going to do? They're like, no, no, we, they, they, you have to send them away. If not, we have to kind of shh, right? It's going to get ugly. But Jesus doesn't even consider that. He says, you feed them. And then there's quiet. Imagine if you were one of the disciples, how would that feel like? I mean, just if you're honest, a sheer moment of panic. What the heck does he mean? Because all the people are still there very, very hungry. And time is still ticking away. 
Notice, Jesus doesn't tell them how to do this. Just that's the expectation. You feed him. And in my mind is like, well, he doesn't give him that Messiah wink. <laughs> I got this. Just be cool. Go with it. He doesn't do any of that, does he? You feed him. See, you're laughing, but if you were there, you would be panicking, as you should. But the expectation doesn't go away. And then disciples, they put their heads together, and then they come back to Jesus, and they're like, listen, we don't, this is what we have. What are we going to do? And that's when Jesus says, I'll do this. I got this. Now, what, another example of this is uh, Jesus expecting more of the disciples than they themselves thought possible was right before he goes back to heaven. And if you remember the story, throughout their time together, he showed them lots of miracles, right? Taught them all kinds of things. Taught them how to pray. He let them experience. He didn't hide them, hide them from this when he got arrested, when he got tortured, when he was dying on a cross. They saw all of it, right? They saw all of it. And then right before he goes back to heaven, he gives them the instructions to continue the work. I'm leaving. You guys continue. Right? And he did this knowing they were all going to be tested. They, they were all likely going to be arrested at some point, tortured. Most of them would die a horrible death. But did that change the expectation? It did not. So the most important thing was that they continued in the plan that God had laid out for them, for their calling, right? They were going to continue to spread the gospel, the good news. He expected them to do this on their own, even in, during difficult times. And in a way, we're seeing that same level of commitment, expectation with the Israelites in our story for today, because it's a really big deal. Now let's continue with verses 6 through 9. Uh, Joshua 11, 6 to 9. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. Because by this time tomorrow, I will hand all of them slain over to Israel. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. So Joshua and his whole army came against them suddenly at the waters of Merom and attacked them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. And they defeated them and pursued them all the way to greater Sidon, to Misrephoth, um, Maim, and then into the valley of Mitzpah on the east until no survivors were left. Joshua did to them as the Lord had directed. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots. Now, I want to take just a moment here and focus on uh, those four words at the beginning, do not be afraid. Now, the Lord is the one that's saying this to Joshua, and he's not saying it for, like, no reason. All right? There are thousands and thousands of reasons for Joshua and the Israelites to be very scared to go against this army. Every one of those reasons involves a huge they're vastly outnumbered, and they have way better technology. They have mounted soldiers, and they have chariots. Israelites have none of those. So God unequivocally is saying, listen, there's plenty of reason to be scared. Plenty of reason. Do not be scared. Do not be afraid. I'm the one telling you not to be afraid. I'm going to be with you. I've called you for this purpose. I will see you through this. But do not be afraid. Right? And just so we can understand this, this is not a unique one-time phrase that gets uttered in the Bible. If you really study the Bible, that phrase gets uttered a fair amount. Right? And actually, I counted them up. A total of 81 times throughout the Old New Testament, we're told uh, that God tells people, do not be afraid. And the first instance, the first time of this happening, actually occurs in Genesis 15. This is what it says, Genesis 15, 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. 
Do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your very great reward. Now in this verse, what God is doing, he's telling Abram, listen, I'm calling you out of your home country. I'm calling you to a foreign land, a place where you don't know anybody. I want you to trust me. I know you're old, I know you have no children, but I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I'm going to give your descendants this very land. And we need to remember, there was no obvious reason for Abram to believe God. This had not happened before. There was no evidence that God was giving him. God simply told him this, said, go to a foreign land, and I want you to trust me. Do not be afraid. All right? And when God says that, that means there's a reason that most people would be very afraid, be very hesitant and not want to do this. But Abram believed in God. He trusted him. He did what God told him to do, and the Bible says he was, it was credited to him as righteousness. And this act of him trusting God, just trusting him, is what started the whole process for the Israelites to even bring them into the promised land. And then eventually through time, we know the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come through the Israelites. And this brings us, I want to share the final time the phrase, do not be afraid, is used. And it's in Revelation 2, verse 10. And this is what it says. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Now, what's interesting about this verse, it's kind of like the bookend, right, of what we've been studying. It's a culmination. We read about Abram getting the first do not be afraid, and then this is ending. And in this verse, Jesus is revealing what's in store for those who remain strong to the end, those who remain true. Notice Abraham has promised numerous descendants and the promised land. Jesus is promising eternal life for those who stay strong. If we remain strong and do not be afraid... Listen, there's plenty of reason to be afraid. That's why we're continually told this. That's why normal people would be afraid in this situation. But if we remain true, if we keep the faith, we will receive the victor's crown, which is eternal life. Right? Which, really, if you look at all this, it's very, very cool if you take a step back and see from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end, it's all connected. It's all related. It's all about faith trusting in God, and understanding his plan for this earth. Now let's get back to our story in Joshua. And what we're seeing unfold here is that God is getting very specific about what's going to happen, right? When the Israelites are what they're to do in the face of such a large army. And this is when, with God being that specific, it's going to help Joshua understand and have faith. It's going to help him understand that God is the one in control. And God says, listen, tomorrow... Tomorrow, you're going to attack this force. You're going to take the first move, and you will win. And when you defeat them, I want you to burn their chariots, and I want you to hamstring their horses. Now, the reason God has the Israelites do this, it's actually quite important. Israelite is not a technically advanced nation. They weren't. They had come from slavery. They'd wandered the desert for decades. They weren't wealthy their way of life, did not provide the resources to have like a large portion of their, civiliz- their, their nation um, go into innovation and production and R&D and all that kind of stuff. They had none of that, right? That wasn't their lifestyle. It wasn't their calling. So when God commanded them to burn the chariots, he was making sure the chariots couldn't be used at a later date by another nation against them. 
And the same was true with horses. Those horses were war horses. They were just used for war to leave them untouched when another nation could come along and take them and use them against the Israelites at some point in the future. And to hamstring them means kind of what it sounds. They would actually cut the hamstring at the back of the leg so they couldn't be ridden anymore, couldn't be used for war. They were basically useless. We also need to point out God did not permit the Israelites to use the horses and the chariots for themselves. Like, pick them up and then use them again, right? Let's be honest, that would have been a great move. That would have been great, really. Think of like a small guerrilla force today taking on the U.S. Army, winning, and then jumping in our tanks. Huge bonus, huge advancement, right? God didn't permit them to do that. He ordered the chariots destroyed and the horses to be made lame. This meant Joshua and the Israelites would have to continue to trust God. They would have to trust him that this perfectly good chariot, which would be fabulous tomorrow, the next battle, leave it. You need to trust God. This also is meant to show the Israelites and to the world, other nations, that God was the one in control. He was the one making this happen. He was the one at work. Now, as we move on to the actual battle, we're going to see that Joshua and the Israelites were successful. They completely defeated the other nation. But as we're going to study this event, we're also going to see, we're going to see that Joshua and the Israelites, they completely annihilated the enemy cities that they encountered, right? And this does include the women and children. So let's read this and let's talk about it so we understand why. Joshua, uh, 10, excuse me, Joshua 11, verses 10 to 15. At that time, Joshua turned back and captured Hazor and put its king to the sword. Hazor had been the head of all these kingdoms. Everyone in it they put to the sword. They totally destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. And he burned Hazor itself. Joshua took all these royal cities and their kings and put them to the sword. He totally destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Yet Israel did not burn any of the cities built on their mounds, except Hazor, which Joshua burned. The Israelites carried off for themselves all the plunder and livestock of these cities, but all the people they put to the sword until they completely destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So we can see that the Israelites killed everyone in those cities, and that would have included, included men, women, and children. And when we read that, we need to ask ourselves, why? It's okay. Why did that happen? Well, the Old Testament tells us, tells us that God was judging those people, the Canaanites, for their abominations, the things that they did, for their horrible behavior. And Leviticus 18 actually lists uh, a number of these behaviors, things that were normal for them. And they include uh, child sacrifice, incest, bestiality, and homosexuality. And the text describes how these behaviors were so commonplace, common, that it defiled the land. It weren't rare. They weren't every once in a while. They were just simply how they lived. That's what the text implies. So on the one hand, God is judge, God, on the one hand, the Old Testament is tell us, telling us that God has judged them but he's also removing them from the land to prevent those behaviors from spreading. He was protecting the Israelites as well. He's putting a stop to them. This is what Deuteronomy uh, 20, verse 18 tells us. This is God's reasoning. It says, Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord. So it is a, it's a very difficult thing that happened, 
But at the same time, God was making sure that none of this, those behaviors, infected the Israelites. All right? And in the big picture, in the big picture, this is God drawing a line in the sand on what is acceptable and what is not, what he considers sin and what is, what is okay. And this also shows that in this time period, God had expectations for the nations outside of Israel as well. There are limits on what he would allow. And in this case, God had had enough. Now, in the next uh, few verses, verses 16 to 19, they list off some of the names and the towns, uh, the locations that uh, the Israelites had conquered. And we don't need to read that. You can read that on, on your own if you like. But I do want to pause and I want to read verse 20 because it too can also stir up emotions and cause some confusion if we don't understand it properly. So let's look at Joshua 11, uh, verse 20. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy, as the Lord had commanded Moses. So again, this is pretty harsh, and it can stir up questions, some emotions, so let's talk about it. In the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, when God gives someone up to their hardened heart, what it means in the biblical sense, he's allowing them to go headlong into behaviors that they're already doing. If they're doing evil and they're going headlong in that, he'll let them go full steam. At some point, he's going to say, if this is a lifestyle you want, if you don't want to turn from your sin, if this is just simply what your heart desires, then this is what eventually will go along with that. So he's not punishing someone or a nation that isn't guilty, but rather he's punishing a nation that has a long history of guilt, a long history of really, really bad behavior, and where it's understandable, where we can understand where their heart is at, and it's not a good place. Nothing about that situation is good. And it should stir up emotions because of how that nation is living, but also what it ultimately results in. It's sad. And this concept, though, is actually directly related to having a healthy fear or a respect of God. Sin is never acceptable. Even small sin has consequences. But we see God doing here. He's He's not just judging the actions or the sin. What he's doing is judging their hearts over time. Because it's that's what's really going on in their heart, deep down, is what's causing the sin. For example, <clears throat> there may be things that you might say or do, like if you accidentally stub your toe, you may suddenly remember words you haven't said for a while. Right? I'm guilty of that too. That's not necessarily okay, but that doesn't mean that you have a bad heart or bad intent. Now compare that to someone who over a very long period of time makes plans to steal, do bad, do evil, and then takes pleasure in it, sees that pleasure, and makes plan to keep doing it, doing it, doing it. That is a bad heart. That's coming from bad intent, who knows evil, chooses to continue, do evil over a long period of time. Those are vastly different scenarios. And those two scenarios also highlight where your heart actually is. Right, So uh, it's not about simply having a bad day and maybe getting short with your spouse or losing your job and, and getting into a deep funk and having difficulty getting out of that. We are human. We make mistakes. But there's always a difference in that to the evil that comes from within and your heart long-term residing in that evil. Those are just simply different, different scenarios. It's knowing about the sin, knowing it's a sin, but still seeking to profit from it, hurt others. Again, even after seeing the damage, still doing it full steam ahead. It's just a different level of sin, and that's what God is talking about in this time period with Joshua. And this is how God has chosen to deal with it. He's cleansed the land, 
and he's starting over in a, in a sense. And it's almost in a way, it's similar to what happened with Noah and the flood, but on a very, 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 very much smaller scale. Now, Jesus spoke about this as well. It actually came up on a debate one point with the Pharisees when they were misinterpreting the law. And Jesus actually makes a really good point about where evil intent comes from. And it's actually there at the point, at this point, they're talking about food and eating with unwashed hands, but he still makes the same point. And this is what he says in Matthew 15, 19 to 20. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, which is lying and slander. These are what defile a person, not eating with unwashed hands. But eating with un unwashed hands does not defile them. This goes right along with what's happening with the people of Canaan. It was their hearts that were the problem, what was coming from within the hearts. They refused to change, and over a very long period of time, God eventually... Um, he acted uh, to remove the sin from the land. And the core of all this is that, it's our, is that sin. Throughout the Bible, we see God working to guide people, all people, away from their sinful behaviors. He's calling them to a new life to leave their sin behind. Now, this next verse uh, from Joshua 11, it tells us how successful they were. Right? It's Joshua 11, verse 23. So Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. Then the land had rest from war. So this is very good in the sense that the main battles were over. The Israelites, they as a group, had taken the major cities, the major areas, and so now each tribe was getting their portion of the land. It was a very good time. This is the culmination of what had already been promised to Abraham so long ago. God had been faithful. He saw them through famine, wars, all kinds of time, difficult times, and now he was giving them the land, right? But their journey, as we're going to see, is not over. Yes, the big cities had been taken, but each tribe is now given their portion of the land as their own, but each tribe is going to still have to drive out the smaller nations, the smaller cities of the people still remaining in, the, in that land. Their job was not done. And for truly to be successful, they were going to need to do this. But we know from the Old Testament that uh, the Israelites never did remove all the people from that land. They allowed some of the nations to remain, and it has caused problems ever since. I mean, honestly, if you, have the, if you have a TV today and you ever watch the news, you'll know the Middle East is still not a safe place. There's still issues going on, even to this day, still fighting over the same land. Now, what we need to learn from this is what Jesus expect us, what he expects us to do with what we have been given. What's our part of the story? Just like with God and the Israelites, we were given an amazing gift. They were given the promised land. We were given the gospel, the message of salvation. And in both cases, those gifts were given with the expectation that we would do something with it. Right? We have a job to do as well. There is responsibility that comes from accepting those gifts. <clears throat> The Israelites were to take over the land, drive out the other people, were called to make disciples. Their battle was their battle, excuse me, their battle was physical. Ours is spiritual. And let's look at Ephesians chapter 6. It makes our role very, very clear. Ephesians 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So everything we do as followers of Jesus Christ involves defeating evil through the work of Jesus. This means sharing the gospel, 
teaching about sin, repentance, baptism, becoming a new creation. You know, as Jesus describes it, he wants his followers to be a light on a hill that draw other people in. Now, there, this past week, I saw an interesting debate. I don't know if you've never heard of an atheist. His name is Sam Harris. He's pretty popular. He gets in a lot of debates. And he said something that really struck with, stuck with me. It's one of those statements that we really need to hear and to kind of use to examine ourselves because it's pretty insightful. Um, and it's sometimes it's the best way to judge how us Christians are doing is see how other people view us, right? What message are they getting about Christianity? And this was the question Sam Harris was asked. And it was, it was, a, it was a debate, and there was this priest there, and he's all in the full garb, all the shiny stuff and the hat and all this kind of stuff. And he asked Sam Harris, he says, what is it that you want Christians to know about atheists? What do you want, Christ, what do you want Christians to know about you? What should we know? And that's a good question. And this is, this is what he replied. He said, we feel the same, the same that you do, you Christians, we feel the same as you about Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Mormons, Zeus, Athena, and all the other gods that humans have conceived of. We feel the same about all of those. We just include one more religion in that. Yours. He says, the way you feel about those religions... We feel the exact same. So we agree on 99.9% of our religions. It's just yours we disagree on because you're all the same. Now, here is what we need to take a heart from that. And this is what really made me stop and think. When we look, when we act, when we look the same as all the other religions, if we're not discernible in any way, then we have failed in some way. The issue is not with atheism. The issue is with Christianity and how it appears, how it looks to other people. They learn, Sam Harris has learned about Christianity from what he sees. And he sees it's no different than anything else. And there's a problem with that. And the reason I bring this up is, for instance, when we read these stories about the Israelites and we hear things that they did well and things they don't, don't do well, uh, we can sometimes go, wow, I can't believe they did that. I would never do that. I would never do that. And I remember this one. This is completely true. This is probably about 10, 15 years ago at the hospital. And I was up on the fifth floor, and there's an elevator there. And I was over at the desk talking to someone. And some people were talking about the Garden of Eden. And whenever someone mentions the Bible, my ears... And they're talking. And one lady says to the other, it's completely true. She goes, I cannot believe Adam and Eve ate that apple. I would never do that. <laughs> Ever. I just can't. Be. Look what they did. And there's just a little bit of indignation there. And it goes along with it. When we see ourselves that we're somehow holy or better, that we would never do that, we're wrong. We do, we're exactly like Adam. We're exactly like the Israelites. We need to understand what we don't do well. How do we look to others? And here's the truth of it. Here's the painful part that I don't like to talk about, that's hard to talk about. Christianity is not on the rise, is it? Not in this country. Right? And it's not on the rise because sometimes I think we have the wrong discussions. Well intended, but I know some people that have really gotten some huge debates and got angry about whether or not prayer should be in all schools. Whether we should have the Ten Commandments in front of every courthouse. And the issue, and those are fine. There's nothing wrong with that necessarily, but the question is, the issue is Jesus didn't specifically tell us to do that. And those things, whether we do or not, they're not going to change how atheists view us. 
being a light to others, the way Jesus meant it, the stuff he told us to do means atheists, they see how we treat others, the poor, the lost, the foreigner. And the way we treat them is so vastly different from the other religions that we stand out. That's the difference, right? The battle that we're to wage is a spiritual one. Jesus showed his disciples how to show true love and forgiveness, to teach about sin, repentance. But he also, this is the hard one, he told them, taught them how to forgive. And that's an easy word to throw around, that we forgive, right? In Matthew 18, Peter and them were having a discussion, and Peter thought he'd be good, really smart. And yeah, we should do it seven times. Because the idea back then was if you do it three times, you're good. You forgive someone three times and they still don't uh, say they're sorry, then fine, you can just kind of don't worry about it. So Peter was like, no, no, seven times to sound great and, you know, so forgiving. And Jesus says, no, 77 times, which is like, Pff. and the, the, the overall point was that the exact number doesn't matter whether it's one or two or 4,000 times. We are to forgive because the Lord forgave us. And we're to forgive no matter what, continually to change the relationship, to help someone learn about God. We're supposed to forgive in a way that is so unusual, so different. We stand out from the pagans, Islam, Muslim, Buddhist, everybody. We should look differently. This is our calling. This is how we're to do battle with the forces of evil. This is how we're to carry on in Jesus' name. Now, in Joshua chapter 12, if you want to read this later, you can, even later this week. It goes through the whole chapter. It lists all the names, the kings, everything uh, that they had defeated. But here's what's noteworthy. This is what I want you to know about chapter 12. It lists off 31 kings that they defeated. 31. That is not a small number. And the reason, the reason that particular chapter lists all those names off is because those weren't imaginary battles. Those were real people. Those were real armies, real nations. That one nation, Israel, went up against each and every one of them. The Israelites many times were vastly outnumbered, vastly outgunned. They went face-to-face -face against armies technically more advanced than them, and yet they followed God's commands. They stayed strong, and they won. And I know I've made this point several times when I talk about Israelites and their history, but we cannot forget about their history. These people were slaves in Egypt. They were slaves. They were freed by God, and they traveled around the desert for 40 years. They didn't do that because they had a great big city they can go to. They did that because they had nowhere to go. And everywhere they went, they had to carry all their belongings on their back. They had no home, no allies, no country to go back to if this failed. God called them into the promised land. And now they're going to have to fight to take over this land, city by city. They were very quickly going to have to switch from being nomads to warriors. And this nation now must fight for their very existence. Remember, there's no warm-up period. They just had to do this. And yet they go. They do just what God commanded them. They go forward into the promised land, and we know that God fought for them and gave them this land. He upholds his end of the deal, the deal that he made with the covenant with Abraham more than 400 years ago. Now, the reason... The reason we should know this, the reason we should look back on stories like this is because when we can see all the things that God has done for his people. That's why these stories are in there. We can learn from them, but we can also see God answers prayer. God has a plan. He sees his people through the difficult times. Right? And this goes throughout the whole Bible. Now, here's what's special about tonight. Each one of you 
is here because God has called you. He put it on your heart to be here. None of you were forced to be here, I'm sure, right? You came of your own will because you wanted to learn about God. You wanted to sing his praises. You wanted to grow in your faith. Now, some of you have answered that call, and you've been coming to church for decades. Some of you may be here at church for your first time tonight. But regardless, we're glad you're here. You're in the right spot. You're in God's home. I want you to know that Jesus Christ died for each and every one of you. He died to wash you clean and make you new. And then when the time is right, as your faith grows, he's going to send you out to do your part in sharing the gospel, the good news. So what we want to do this evening, like we do many, many times in this church, we want to give everybody the opportunity to accept Jesus into, into their life, to make that decision, to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins, to make you new, and then to follow him. So if you would like to do that, what I would like to do is when we pray, I would like you to pray with me. Say the words quietly in your head. Whatever you say is between you and God, but only you can make that choice. Only you can step forward and say, I want to belong to Jesus. I want to increase my faith. So let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Father, I believe in your son, Jesus Christ. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you raised him from the dead. And tonight it is my choice. But I ask Jesus to come into my life and to make me new. I want to belong to him. I ask him to forgive me, to save me, to guide my steps, and to help me in my new life. And Father, today, I pray that you will increase the faith of each person here, every one of us. We ask you to give us courage and strength and determination to stand strong in all of life's trials. We ask to trust you the way the Israelites did. May everything we go through, both good and bad, may it Strengthen our faith, and may we lean on you. Father, we also pray. We pray for all people to come to know you and to place their trust in you. Because it's only through you and the saving grace of your Son that we have hope and that we are saved. Father, tonight we pray that as our faith grows, as our church grows, that you will use each one of us as you see fit. Use us to expand your kingdom. Your kingdom. Send us out. Father, we thank you for the life that you've given us, for every blessing you've bestowed upon us, and we thank you for the church. But most of all, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we ask all these things. Amen.